Welcome. My name is Jennifer Sloan and I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto and your host for today. We are proud of our 118 year history as the leading public affairs podium in the country. And we're proud of our commitment to providing a diverse set of guest speakers who address issues in a way that our ever quickening pace of life rarely allows. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to the province, and to our country. Through our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining our conversation today. And to kick us off, I'm going to ask Minister Kenny to draw a business card, and the lucky winner will receive a $25 gift certificate from Target. <laughs> and Lynn Chow, the executive director of the club, will announce the winner. The winner is Lee Weasling. Congratulations. Congratulations, Lee, and happy shopping. Now, please allow me to introduce your head table. Head table guests, please stand as I recognize you and remain standing until everyone has been introduced. And ladies and gentlemen, please hold your applause till everyone has been welcomed. Scott Milligan, Executive Vice President and CFO, Morneau-Chapelle. Bernadette McKenzie, President and Chair, Essential Skills Ontario. Julia Shindoy, General Counsel and Secretary to the Board, Ryerson University. Alan Odette, President and CEO, Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and a past president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Linda Franklin, President and CEO, Colleges Ontario. Ivan Solano, PhD candidate, Graduate Department of Rehabilitation Science, University of Toronto, and a 2014-15 Civic Action Diversity Fellow. Ratna Omavar, Executive Director, Global Diversity and Migration Exchange, Ryerson University, and a Director of the Canadian Club of Toronto. John Walsh, President, Conservative Party of Canada, and our speaker today, Canada's Minister of Employment and Social Development, the Honourable Jason Kenney. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. I'd like to express special thanks to today's event sponsor, Morneau Chappelle, represented here by Scott Milligan. Scott, thank you for being with us and for your support. I'd also like to welcome a group of Havago College students, sponsored by Julia Lorenzo. Yay. Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I'm pleased to introduce this afternoon's guest speaker. In today's complex and extremely competitive job market, many people find themselves asking, which comes first, the skills or the job? That's a puzzle that today's speaker is working to solve. Whether you're a midlife tradesperson who's been laid off, a professional looking to change careers, or a recent grad, one thing is clear. You need skills to find a job 
and you can develop many more skills on the job. The Federal Minister of Employment and Social Development, the Honourable Jason Kenney, calls it the paradox of too many Canadians without jobs in an economy of too many jobs without Canadians. According to the most recent data from Statistics Canada, Canadian businesses reported 235,000 job vacancies in June. That means for every job opening, there were almost six unemployed people. There are many measures being taken to make sure that those looking for work have the skills they need to find one. This has been the Minister's primary occupation since he took on the Employment and Social Development portfolio in July 2013. His mandate is to ensure that Canadians are well prepared to participate fully in the labor, labor market of the future. He chairs the Cabinet Committee on Operations, is the Regional Minister for Southern Alberta, and sits on the Cabinet Committees for Social Affairs and Planning and Priorities. He also holds the distinction of being Canada's longest-serving Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, a title he held from 2008 to 2013. Mr. Kenney is credited with implementing comprehensive reforms to Canada's immigration, refugee, and citizenship programs. Before I relinquish the program, I want to leave, uh, let our live audience know that you can join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram at CL, no, sorry, CDN, C-L-U-B-T-O, or by using that hashtag. The minister has also graciously agreed to take questions from you after his speech, so think of your questions now. And now, Minister Kenny, the Canadian Club of Toronto, Canada's podium of record, is yours. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, wonderful to be back here at uh, this, one of the most august podiums in public discourse in Canada for the second time. I was uh, speaking to the Canadian Club a couple of years ago about our immigration reforms. It's uh, especially nice to be here during what someone just referred to as the uh, recess from Parliament. I said, it, I wish it was like recess, uh, but in fact, during 10 days, I'm, I've been in 10 different cities, uh, so much for the break week. Um, so this is Friday, it must be Toronto. I, I want to thank you all for uh, your interest in what it, I, I believe is uh, one of the most important issues our country is facing. That is to say how we can guarantee our future prosperity by making the most of the potential of every Canadian. You know, as I, as I say every day, we have this paradox in Canada of an economy with, that has too many people without jobs and too many jobs without people. Uh, this has created an interesting debate. Virtually every business organization, industry group, and association of employers says that their number one challenge right now is finding enough people to fill the jobs that are available. Of course, this is true in the red-hot labor markets of the West, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, but it's also true, believe it or not, even here in the metropolitan Toronto. It's true in industries you might not expect. You know, in southern Ontario in the past, since uh, the global economic downturn in 2008, we've seen the loss of over 300,000 manufacturing jobs in this uh, industrial heartland of our country. And yet, when I speak to owners of manufacturing companies, they tell me their n number one challenge right now 
are finding people with the right skills to work in their operations. Uh, when I speak to the uh, information technology businesses, these cutting-edge, high-value, uh, high-tech companies in the Kitchener-Waterloo corridor, notwithstanding the layoffs at BlackBerry, they tell me that at any given time, employers in that industry, in that region, are, are short of about 2,000 workers cumulatively. When I talk to the service industry in St. John's, Newfoundland, they complain about the impacts of full employment in the Avalon Peninsula and the difficulty of finding workers, as do the mining companies in Labrador et les sociétés uh, informatiques à Montréal qui font les, qui produisent les jeux vidéo, qui se plaignent d'une pénurie de main d'œuvre spécialisée uh, dans leur domaine. C'est un problème que nous voyons dans toutes sortes de secteurs et de toutes les, les régions du Canada. Uh, and on the other hand, we have the academic economists, many private sector bank economists, and much of the labor market research indicating that we are not facing a labor shortage in Canada. Unfortunately, the, the nuance gets lost in this debate, as it typically does when it hits the, the media. The truth is that we do not have a general labor shortage in Canada. The aggregate labor market information produced by Statistics Canada is very clear on this point. And as you just said, uh, there are six unemployed Canadians for every job being advertised. Indeed, we know that there are unacceptably high pockets of unemployment. Generally, we have done well in our labor market since the global downturn. We have seen the creation of nearly 1.2 million net new jobs since the end of the downturn, the overwhelming majority of which are in high-paying, high-skilled jobs uh, in the private sector. And uh, that's the good news. Uh, and the economy, notwithstanding recent turbulation in, in uh, commodity prices and, and uh, stock markets, the economy in Canada has been one of the strongest in the developed world. Uh, with, uh, uh, and the future is looking bright. With a, on the cusp of a balanced federal budget, the lowest federal taxes as a share of our economy since the mid-1960s, uh, Forbes and um, the uh, uh, and, and others saying that Canada is the best country in the world in which to start a new business or for new business investment. Uh, diversification of our export markets. Just in the last two weeks, we've signed the final Canada-Korea trade agreement, the, lar the first ever Canadian trade agreement with an Asian country, and of course the Canada-Europe trade agreement, which represents uh, virtually tariff-free access to a developed market of half a billion people in 27 countries. We have hundreds of billions of dollars of planned uh, investments in commodities developments all through northern Canada. We have one of the best educated populations in the world. We have an awful lot going for us. But yet, we still face this paradox of too many jobs without people and too many people without jobs. As I say, when you look at particular uh, elements of our population, you see how unacceptable unemployment is. Youth unemployment continues to be about twice the overall average. We have a youth unemployment of 13.2%, and in the GTA, it's over 20%. Uh, amongst Aboriginal Canadians, of course, the level of labor force participation is unacceptably low, and in many First Nations communities, unemployment is at stratospheric levels. Uh, amongst new immigrants, unemployment is at 11.2%. It's almost twice as high as the general unemployment rate for newcomers who've been in Canada for less uh, than five years. According to the panel on um, the employment of persons with disabilities, there are some 800,000 Canadians with disabilities 
who would like to work but aren't, and that's probably because they're not being given the necessary accommodation. And perhaps a little bit of training or accommodation on the part of employers could help uh, those people to benefit from gainful uh, employment. So how do we address this paradox, then, especially when, uh, as I mentioned, every business organization tells me that they are desperate for workers, and increasingly employers say they need to uh, fill that uh, need through access to temporary foreign workers. Now, of course, they, we are an open country. In fact, one of the ways that we address the shrinking of our domestic labor force and the aging of our population is through immigration. Um, you know, Canada has been maintaining the developed world's highest levels of immigration over the past several years. In fact, since the government of which I'm a member came to office in 2006, we have admitted uh, well over 2 million new permanent residents and, by the way, sworn in 1.5 million new Canadian citizens. So just put that in perspective. We have added to the Canadian population the equivalent of the populations of Saskatchewan and Manitoba combined, and then some, admitting about 260,000 new permanent residents. I stress that because there's a bit of an urban legend uh, out there. Um, if you can refer to columns in the Toronto Star as being urban legends, suggesting that the government has somehow replaced permanent immigrants with temporary foreign workers. It's complete nonsense. If you doubt me, go to the statistics page of Immigration Canada. So 260,000 permanent residents a year, uh, admitting the equivalent of about 0.8% of our population per year through uh, immigration, which is tied with New Zealand for the highest per capita level of amongst the large developed, uh, larger developed economies of the world. So that, however, doesn't come close to addressing the demographic changes, which are only going to deepen the challenges in our labor market. Um, according to a study done by the C.D. Howe Institute four years ago, for us to maintain the current average age in our population through immigration would require quadrupling immigration levels from over a quarter of a million a year to over a million a year, from 0.8% of population to 4% of population. Now, we are an open, welcoming country. That's part of our history. That is who we are. That's in our, the DNA of our political culture. We want to keep it that way. But there are also practical limits to our capacity to integrate and welcome newcomers, to ensure that they have not just employment, but housing, health care, and infrastructure. And that's why about 90%, excuse me, about 80% of Canadians consistently say in public opinion research that they think immigration levels are too high or high enough and should not be increased. Only about one out of every 10 Canadians says we should increase immigration levels at all. And apart from the kind of night watchman state libertarian crowd, I don't think there's public support for a million permanent residents per year. Uh, with apologies to Andrew Coyne. Um, so we have to be realistic about this. You could increase immigration levels significantly, my point is, and you still wouldn't substantially change, the bend the arc of demography uh, with the aging of our population and the shrinking of our domestic workforce. So our view, my view was, first of all, we have to get the most out of the newcomers who arrive, and they need to get the most out of Canada in terms of opportunity and the realization of their potential. First, before just raising immigration levels arbitrarily, which we know doesn't work mathematically to address the, the aging of the population, before considering that, we should consider addressing the chronic problem of underemployment and unemployment amongst newcomers. I mentioned 
the almost 12% unemployment rate amongst new Canadians who've been here for less than five years. But what that doesn't show you is the huge problem of underemployment. Over two-thirds of immigrants to Canada end up working in fields other than those for which they were trained. And, you know, in the theaters now, we have the movie Dr. Cabby. We all know that phenomenon. Uh, it's a bit of a myth, but it, many myths are have, have a kernel of reality in them. And the reality is this. For 40 years, we have seen declining economic results for newcomers. Immigrants to Canada in the early 1970s used to make about 90% of the median family income. That's down to about 65%. And uh, how does this make any sense that you would admit a quarter of a million new Canadians into an economy that has labor and skill shortages in various regions and industries, but they and a disproportionate number of them end up being unemployed and underemployed. Something wasn't working. And that's why we launched on a campaign of fundamental uh, immigration reform to move from a slow, passive, supply-driven immigration system with declining economic and labor market outcomes to a fast, flexible, uh, demand-driven immigration system that will do a radically better job of selecting people, not just based on generic a notion of human capital, but but people with the precise set of uh, the precise uh, kind of human capital that is relevant to fill particular positions that are in demand in our economy. Now, so I, some of our critics have said this is sort of a, merc- a mercantilization of the Canadian immigration system. It's a commercialization of the system. I say, you know what? The data we're following the data. The, ta- the data tells us. The evidence tells us that newcomers who arrive with a prearranged job are making on average $80,000 after their third year in Canada versus those who arrive without a prearranged job who make half as much three years into their Canadian residency. So um, why should it even be contentious that we seek as much as reasonably possible to line up newcomers with jobs so that the employers have already done an evaluation of their, of their, of their education, of their competencies, of their license, professional license to ensure that they are at or close to the Canadian standard. That's essentially what our new system seeks to do. Greater involvement on the part of employers, not to bring people in as temporary residents, but as permanent residents. A faster system, so that's actually relevant, because in the old system, uh, where our big immigration program was taking eight years to go through the queue, of course employers weren't going to wait eight years uh, to fill a position from, with someone from abroad. Now they can, in the new system called Express Entry, being launched in January of 2015, modeled in large part on the successful immigration reforms in Australia and New Zealand, we'll be able to do that, we hope, in three to six months as permanent residents. We're now doing a pre-evaluation, an evaluation of the quality of people's education and its relevance to the Canadian standards in the selection process. So we no longer attribute the same value to a degree from the Indian Institute of Technology, the MIT of Asia, as we do to the dodgiest college in India. We now actually do a qualitative assessment, which will help to select people whose degrees will likely be recognized in Canada. And we're working with the professional licensing bodies to do as much as possible a pre-evaluation of people's professional licenses before they get here. There are some countries where to be an engineer essentially means to have a... a um, perhaps one-year college certificate, and to be what we would call a repairman, not to be a professional engineer with a graduate degree. So we need to know that, and that person needs to know that, before they come to Canada and find that their hopes and aspirations are being frustrated. 
So it's about being fair to newcomers. It's about helping them to realize their potential. It's about making the most of everyone who comes to this country. And a number of other aspects of immigration reform, very important, like a better geographic distribution of newcomers. It's a bit contentious here in Ontario, but I don't think it's a bad thing that we now see. You know, Ontario continues to receive 45% of newcomers to Canada. It used to be closer to 60%. It's equivalent to Ontario's share of the population. We now have, you can go to places like Swift Current, Saskatchewan, and have a curry lunch. That's something new, I can tell you. <laughs> you can go to um, Troshu, Alberta, and visit the Filipino uh, grocery store. I think it's wonderful to see this new wave of diversity happening in rural Western Canada with its red-hop labor market, welcoming communities where people are finding wonderful futures. Another aspect of those reforms. But as I say, immigration reform in and of itself is not the solution. It's part of the solution. We won't solve this paradox of too many people without jobs and too many jobs without people without significant reform of our domestic vocational education training and labor market policies. And that's what I'm primarily focused on now. And I know with many of the partners in this room, Essential Skills and Skills Canada, many of the, the colleges and polytechnics and both in the private and public sector represented in this room are doing this work every single day. The reality is this, that it makes no sense that we should have um, high levels of youth unemployment, for example, and high levels of underemployment for young Canadians with university degrees in an economy with acute skill and labor shortages. And so we need to do something differently. This is why I led a uh, skills mission to Germany and the United Kingdom earlier this year to look at how others do it differently. Sometimes we Canadians, as sort of cosmopolitan as we imagine ourselves, I think sometimes we're a wee bit parochial. Sometimes actually it's useful to look hard at better models with better outcomes in other parts of the world. Germany, for example, in fact, the Germanic vocational education systems of Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Denmark, and to some extent the Netherlands have a extraordinarily robust uh, integrated system of dual training, vocational education with massive investments by the private sector and with extraordinary outcomes. What do I mean by that? In Germany, in those systems, typically about two-thirds of secondary school leavers at the age of 16 go into paid apprenticeship programs based on dual learning where they, where they spend several days a week on a work site making a decent basic salary and a couple of days a week in a Berufskolleg, in a vocational training institute, in one of 350 uh, apprenticeable trades. Not we think of trades here as construction trades. Uh, in, in Germany, it can be service industry, it can be banking, uh, uh, an enormous array of, of different occupations, which means that they have created standards and formalized training programs for all of those occupations. Typically, those, train, those apprenticeship programs take three years to complete. So you've got two-thirds, roughly, of youth in those countries leaving the dual training at the age of 19 with a certificate that has enormous prestige and value attached to it. This is one of the key learnings in the Germanic training system, that that, apprentice, that trade apprenticeship certificate in the case of Germany, a federal system recognized equally in all of their landers, is considered as having the same economic and social value as a university degree. Now, I know it's hard for us to process this, but it's not just the politicians and the labor union leaders and the 
educators at the colleges who say this, the employers. Academics tell me this. I remember the leading expert in, in German post-secondary education, a guy with two PhDs, tell me that he was concerned to see a slight increase in the number of young Germans going directly into academic university programs as opposed to apprenticeship trade programs. I don't think I would ever hear that from an academic in Canada. And so this is what they call in the Germanic systems the parity of esteem, by which they mean the parents, the high school counselors, the teachers, the entire culture says to young people that there is an equality of esteem between different occupations, professional and technical vocations, between university education and, and, and trades training. This is something, you know, we can't replicate the Germanic system here for all sorts of reasons, but we can certainly learn from some of the lessons, and that's surely something we can aspire to do, to have high school counselors and teachers indicate to young people that they can realize their potential with dignity and esteem and, and make wonderful futures for themselves, their families, and their communities in many different ways of education and, and vocation. Now, by the way, let me rebut one of the misconceptions about the Germanic system. It's often said that it's rigid streaming that's brutally unfair to young people, and kids are shunted into these apprenticeship programs in their cul-de-sacs, their, their dead ends. This is, this is complete rubbish. The truth is that the, the Germanic systems are constantly innovating and are incredibly flexible, and as, they, as they say, permeable, meaning a 19-year-old who leaves with a trades training certificate, with an apprenticeship certificate, can then, if he chooses to do so, he or she can go on to a university program, not necessarily just a conventional Canadian-style university. They could go to a co-op university where they continue to, to get practical learning with an employer and theoretical learning uh, in a classroom. If you go and visit the executive suite of Siemens, the world's largest engineering company, virtually everyone in that room, in that suite, will have started wearing overalls on a, in a trades training program as an apprentice on a shop floor in their system. And eventually, ended up getting a, a professional degree, perhaps in finance or engineering. So there is enormous permeability in this system. And here's the magic. It's the outcome. 95% of those 19-year-olds who leave with that certificate end up working in the field for which they were trained, very typically for the employer who hired them as apprentices. And this is be in part because the employers in the, those European systems have a deep sense of responsibility for the future. They think about the long term and they invest in it. One of the things that I find most frustrating as Canada's jobs minister is to see that the data which indicates that Canadian governments invest more in skills development and job training than virtually any other OECD country, and yet the private sector in our country spends less than the private sector in virtually any other developed country on skills development. In fact, the conference board study a couple of years ago indicated that not only are we behind the curve relative to our competitor countries, but we're falling further behind that in real uh, inflation-adjusted terms, Private sector investments in skills development have declined by 
from 1990 to 2010. That is unacceptable. Now, to give our businesses their due, many, of course, do invest very significantly in training. A lot of them say that this data doesn't pick up all of their investments. A lot of the construction companies, for example, contribute indirectly through their collective bargaining agreements to union training shops. And all of that is great. But still, it is a fraction of what they invest in the Germanic systems. In Germany alone, 38 billion euros the equivalent of over 50 billion Canadian dollars invested every year in apprenticeship programs alone. There is an absolute expectation that if, if you have the capacity, if you're a medium or larger size employer, you will have a significant number of paid apprentices learning on your in your shop. And I said to them, you know, the Canadian employers tell me that they don't invest in apprenticeship programs or, or more in training because they're concerned about the problem of poaching. Ils s'inquiètent que s'ils investissent dans une, euh, une, la formation d'un jeune employé, qu'ils perdront à notre compagnie à la fin et ils perdront leurs investissements. But in Germany, they said, look, that's not, we don't even think about that. We realize we're all contributing to the overall health and quality of our labor market. So this is the other key learning, I think, that we must find a way to apply in Canada, which is to incentivize businesses to invest more in their own labor market. And let me be blunt with you. This is one of the reasons that our government recently made reforms, controversial reforms, to the temporary foreign worker program. Because we don't want it to become easier for an employer to hire a labor recruiter abroad to bring someone in on a temporary visa to fill a particular spot, as opposed to making the investments in training. But there are many other ways in which we are trying to encourage businesses in this respect and encourage young Canadians to make these choices. Later this year, my department will be, release, will be launching our new career choice tool, which will be an interactive, downloadable app. Hopefully, I don't know how this is going to work, designed by uh, an Ottawa bureaucracy to be useful for 16-year-olds, but we're going to give it a crack. Um, I can, I can, how could this possibly go wrong? Um, we're, we're going to give this a crack to, so, that, so that a 16-year-old uh, starting to think about their future can on their smartphone, figure out that they have much better employment and income prospects as a journeyman plum plumber than as a BA in political scientist. We already have a surplus of those in Ottawa anyway. Um, so we're going to be launching that. We're launching the, the new Canada Job Bank 2.0, working with the provinces. So to, much, to have a comprehensive, uh, dynamic job matching service online. So when employers apply for temporary foreign workers, for example, their, their availability of those positions will automatically go online. When people are applying for EI, their, the, 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 their availability, not their private information, but their availability and their, their work level will go online. So hopefully we no longer have fish processing plants in Atlantic Canada bringing in people from Thailand to do jobs while folks are on unemployment insurance in the same communities who are fish processing plant workers. Hopefully we can nudge both the employees and the employers together using technology. It's also part of our employment insurance reforms. But we've also massively incentivized programs like apprenticeships, the, Canada, the, the apprenticeship incentive grant, $2,000 for people who enroll in apprenticeship programs, the apprenticeship completion grant, the employer tax credit for hiring apprentices, the uh, support for innovative ways of delivering apprenticeship training, the... Um, uh, the New Canada Apprenticeship Loan, if you were doing short-term studies, like your 10-week block training as an apprentice, you didn't get any access to student financing. And now, in the last budget, I think our most important 
announcement was the new Canada apprenticeship loan. If you're doing short-term periods of studies, like your block training, you can now get financing to help with the opportunity cost of leaving the work site. By the way, I have to say parenthetically that the employers, in, that's not a problem in Europe. They, they don't have to go off cold, their, their salary cold turkey to do their block training because the, block, the training is integrated. But these are all things we've done, and these have helped to result in a doubling of apprenticeship enrollments in Canada, which is important. More must be done. I know we have representatives here from the Ontario College of Trades. While it's not the federal responsibility, I have encouraged my provincial counterparts and in turn the regulatory bodies of trades to review and wherever possible reduce uh, journey person apprenticeship ratios to open up more opportunities for young people. There should, uh, and apprenticeship harmonization. I'm working with the provinces on ensuring that if someone starts an apprenticeship program in Manitoba, they can move to Ontario without losing their hours or their credits or, what, uh, or towards uh, getting their ticket. And of course, we've launched the Canada Job Grant, which is designed to offset which, uh, an employer investment in training, to reduce the risk for employers in training a young person. But we need the provinces as well to do more. They have most of the levers in this area. I commend the province of British Columbia for their initiative called Reengineering Education, where they are now getting better labor market information on outcomes from different post-secondary programs, and they say explicitly that the dollars will, st- the public dollars will start to follow increasingly the employment outcomes. What does that mean? If the power engineering program at the British Columbia Institute of Technology sees that 99% of its employees are working as power engineers, making very good incomes within months of, get, of their certificate, but uh, the, perhaps that program should get a little bit more support, as opposed to some programs where only 10% of graduates are getting um, um, employed in the field for which they were trained. So much more must be done, particularly focusing on Aboriginal Canadians, persons with disabilities. We're also retooling our uh, enormous $3 billion annual federal investments in skills development through the labor market development agreements with the provinces. That's the EI-funded training to make it more employer-led and more uh, results-oriented, faster interventions with unemployed uh, workers. Um, this is I could go on, for, uh, but I have to wrap up. You can get the, you, you understand there is a huge amount of work for us to do as a country. And I'll close by saying we need, we need a, 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 this is not, by the way, a partisan or an ideological or even a regional issue. For example, on the job grant, we had some, we had a bit of a bun fight at the beginning between the typical federal-provincial relations, but we sat down and we hammered it out. I want to thank Alan Odette from the Ontario Chamber for constructive role played in that. And Prime Minister Harper and I were at a trades college in Winnipeg last week with the NDP Premier of Manitoba presenting the very first job grant presented to uh, a Canadian company. This is not about, actually, uh, politics and partisanship. This is about, frankly, common sense. This is about all of us working together, the federal and provincial governments, teachers, parents, high school counselors, colleges and universities, unions and private sector employers, all of us realizing that we... (laughs) as a country, have these remarkable blessings and opportunities, but we will not fully seize them unless we get this right. We're doing our part, our best on immigration, to realize the potential of all of our new Canadians. Let's do the same for all Canadians, all young Canadians, all Aboriginal Canadians, all underemployed Canadians. Let's do what we can to ensure that they have bright futures and enjoy this country's remarkable prosperity as well. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Minister. And as I noted at the onset, the ministers agreed to take a couple of questions. So um, we have roving mics out there. Just ask you to please introduce yourself, and we just ask you to please pose a question short on the preamble, please. Thanks. And to you, human resource consultant, Minister Kenny, as you are probably aware, there are more Canadian citizens who live in Hong Kong than mm -hmm. there are Canadian citizens who live in Saskatoon, Thunder Bay, or Moncton. With the latest numbers estimating that at least 300,000 Canadians live in Hong Kong right now. Recently, a considerable number of them have been contemplating return to Canada. <laughs> what measures does the federal government intend to have in place to ensure that the return of these Canadians will proceed as smoothly as possible for these Canadians and the communities that they return to? That's a very good question. Uh, and indeed, I've been to Hong Kong many times to meet, precisely to meet uh, with a large Canadian community there in my capacity as Minister for uh, Multiculturalism. And um, first of all, we hope that they don't feel compelled to, to leave because of uh, political instability, and that is why we uh, continue to encourage uh, restraint and uh, nonviolence on the part of both protesters and uh, government authorities in Hong Kong. It's also why Canada has called on the uh, People's Republic of China to respect the undertakings that it made uh, in the transfer agreement and that are enshrined in the basic law uh, to respect the commitment to universal suffrage uh, in the Hong Kong Legislative Council. And so we hope that uh, those commitments are kept and that cooler heads prevail so that uh, Canadians and others can live peaceably in, in Hong Kong. Of course, should some people d d decide to return, they're always welcome to. They are Canadian citizens. Uh, I think you know the process. They have to reestablish their residency. I'll tell you the truth. When I was in Hong Kong a couple of times, I was trying to encourage the Canadian community groups. To, I said, how can we get the, all the Canadians over here more involved in Canada, raising funds for Canadian charities and joining Canadian organizations and maintaining an active connection to Canada? And most people said to me, Minister, that's a great idea, but most of us want to do everything we can to maintain our non-residency for tax purposes. <laughs> I should have, I, 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 it was one of those moments where I, I realized I should have understood that at the beginning. Um, and so, and so uh, these are people who have often, for, for fiscal reasons, uh, maintained, uh, an, shall we say, an attenuated connection uh, to Canada. If they come back, they're welcome. But, you know, uh, and I think I'll, I, it's no secret that, that there are, um, a lot of residences belonging to people in, in Hong Kong and China that are they own in Canada. So I, I don't think this is a, a potential crisis. I think this is, uh, uh, you, you, you're, I don't anticipate uh, a, a huge and sudden migration. Um, uh, but certainly um, I think those communities that have large Hong Kong-based populations like Richmond, British Columbia, for example, are going to have to keep an eye on this in terms of uh, municipal services. We have a question over here. Uh, my name is Frank Kerenser. I'm with Trios College. I'm also, I, I've met you at our uh, annual convention at, uh, in Ottawa for the Career Colleges Ontario and National Association of Career Colleges. Um, we are applauding what you're doing with the Canada Job Grant. It's a fantastic thing. It's exactly what we need, and it's right across the entire country. Of course, it's being interpreted differently in every single province and territory uh, as we go. Um, our sector uh, serves people that are older. Average age is typically about 30, okay? And it's a whole range right through to the 60s that are onto it. What, what role do you see of career colleges working with 
the government on the Canada Job Grant to help employers fill uh, the skills demands that they need. Very good. By the way, if 30-year-olds are older, I'm feeling a lot older right now um, than I did before. The uh, Look, we are working with the... We, we wanted to, In order to get the provinces to participate, we had to give them, obviously, some flexibility in how they deliver the program. Um, but I'm very clear with my provincial counterparts. We expect them to deliver the program as it is conceived, which is uh, an employer-led program that ensures there's some employer skin in the game. Uh, the, the, I, I honestly think the only major problem we're going to have with it is that it will be oversubscribed. We've already have a couple of provinces that opened applications uh, that have fully subscribed the first-year allotment for the job grant. It, it grows by 25% a year between now um, and 2017 when it will be uh, fully implemented with a... Um, uh, with a federal contribution of $340 million. Um, and and so, look, these are very early days. I would say give the provinces a chance to get their machinery in place, uh, to promote the program. We're very keen on that, uh, that, that employers are aware of it. We want as much as possible to focus on SMEs because they've got less capacity to tra- to invest in training. Um uh, and, uh, it, and and so, you know, as I say, we're going to work very closely with them. I'm meeting with the Federal Forum of Labor Market Ministers here in Toronto next month to discuss this. Um, and by the way, when I talked about the need for partnership on this big challenge of uh, reforming our training system in Canada, uh, do you know that the Forum of Labor Market Ministers, I and my provincial counterparts, had not met for nearly five years when I came into this uh, position, which is ridiculous. This is an area of urgency that requires enormous federal-provincial collaboration. Thankfully, we've met twice, and we're going to keep up a pace of meeting uh, every six months to check on progress on things like implementation of the job grant, involving employers more in the training system broadly, apprenticeship harmonization, um, removing existing barriers to labor mobility across the country, foreign credential recognition, etc. We have just two more questions. They're both over here on the right side of the room. Hi, thank you for being here. Um, I actually work at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce with Alan. Um, and as you know, we are one of the organizations that came out first with the paper on the express entry system. Um, and when we were interviewing um, and talking to our membership, only 6% of employers actually know that it's coming down the pipeline. Yeah. And in Australia, their program faced a lot of challenges because they didn't have employer uptake. So I was wondering, a lot. Um, there was a large advertisement campaign for the Canada Job Grant even before it was negotiated with the provinces. So I was just, <laughs> I was wondering what is going to be done to make sure that employers know that express entry is coming. Um, I was just talking to my colleague, Chris Alexander, Minister of Immigration, about precisely this, and there are plans for significant promotion campaign. I mean, every federal department has uh, a budget for communications, and CIC, Immigration Canada, will be focusing on making people aware of the um, express entry system. For those who are not, this is the new meta-reform of the economic immigration system, Um, the new kind of demand-driven, faster-moving process for selecting it, it, maybe just, I'll, I'll take this opportunity actually to advertise it here. Uh, for those of you, there are some immigration practitioners who kind of understand the concept. There'll be more details coming out in November. But essentially, um, this is a system that will invite pres- people immig- interested in immigrating to Canada from around the world to, quotes, express their interest through a uh, preliminary application where we do an initial assessment of their human capital. And if they meet our basic criteria in terms of things like language proficiency, uh, education being pertinent to Canada, their age tilting towards younger immigrants, for example. If they meet those basic criteria, 
they would then be invited to make a, an application to go into the pool. And then employers, uh, and by the way, I have to be um, govern expectations here. The full employer link into the system won't be completely up and running on January the 1st. It's going to take a few months into uh, probably the second quarter of, uh, of 2015 for the, um, the, the job bank to be f- fully interoperable with the expression of interest pool. Uh, so basically employers will be able to go into that pool, query for people who have the skills that they need, uh, and then make a connection to them prospectively and offer them a job and then nominate them for uh, permanent residency. And, of course, the provincial nominee programs, we hope, will also be kind of folded into that. I shouldn't say folded, but it will become part of that. Uh, they'll be able to access the pool as well. So you're quite right. There were some startup challenges with this in Australia. But the New Zealand system has worked well. They've worked through the bugs in Australia. We have the advantage of, of learning from their um, experience. So there will be a promotions budget. Most importantly, we need groups like you, the Ontario Chamber, the local chambers, uh, boards of trade, to work with especially their SMEs, those employers who do not have HR departments, they don't have immigration lawyers on speed dial, they don't understand the system, they just know they need someone. And in the past, they've learned that the way they fill that need from abroad is the temporary form worker program. Somebody, in addition to the government, has got to help those small businesses that don't have the capacity to walk them through how to, work, how to uh, access workers in the system. Sure. Thank you. Uh, my name is Deepak Dave, and uh, I'm just here as a private member. I was curious, could you comment perhaps on how initiating and improving some of the free trade agreements with countries or regions around the world that this government in particular has undertaken? Labor mobility isn't often a big part of these agreements. Mm. I moved here from the UK, and so, as you know, with the EU, we have a very different system. I was just curious if perhaps you could comment on how building labor mobility to some extent into these agreements might make a dent in, as you described it, the demographic arc. Thank you. You're absolutely right. All of these trade agreements involve some commitments with respect to labor mobility, but of course they have to be limited. Uh, When we sign a a trade agreement with Korea, it doesn't mean that every Korean automatically gets to come and work whenever they want for whatever reason in Canada. It it does mean that we guarantee mobility for particularly intercompany transferees, for people who have specialized skills, uh, to come and work for, in the case of Korea, Samsung or other Korean employers here. In the case of Canada, Europe, again, there are some aspirational commitments on uh, labor mobility. Uh, you know, I think the best way we can make that a reality is um, is is through agreements with that lead to mutual recognition of credentials for professionals. Um, because, uh, you know... This is something that Quebec, an agreement has, Quebec has signed with France in particular, trying to get their professional bodies to work out uh, mutual recognition with French uh, professional licensing bodies. So there's some practical things we can and will be doing uh, on, on that front. Long story short, I think the trade agreements bode, bode well for labor mobility, but it will always be um, uh, governed by our fair and generous immigration rules. It's never going to be a complete uh, uh, free-for-all, so to speak. Thank you, Minister. We'll ask Alan Odette to thank the Minister. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to see you here today. I, I, I want to, uh, to offer my personal thanks and gratitude. I often refer to this minister as the Energizer Bunny, and uh, for those of you who know him, you'll understand what I mean. Olivia Chow says I'm the Energizer Bunny going in the wrong direction. He could, well, so, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm nonpartisan, um, but I'll take an opportunity to say uh, 
I don't think there's ever anything I've ever agreed with Olivia Chow on, so, I, <laughs> so I'm probably not allowed to say that here today. I really want to thank you. I want to thank you for the leadership uh, that you've brought to, to this and, and to your immigration file. We've worked very closely with this uh, particular minister. His comments earlier about uh, Siemens, I spoke with the uh, CEO, Robert Hart, of Siemens this morning and uh, at our economic summit next week, we're going to spend some significant time talking about the very issues, the role and responsibility of employers uh, in this whole equation. And while I think there are uh, many employers doing a great job, um, there's a tremendous uh, amount of more opportunity for them to participate at a different level. Um, so again, I, I just want to say thank you for all that you do. You are a great Canadian and uh, for the time, energy, effort you've spent trying to help uh, shape and drive our future is very much appreciated. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Alan, and I'd like to uh, echo your message and thank the minister for being with us. He just apologized for what he thought was running too long. I thought it was very informative, and so we thank you. I'd also, again, like to thank uh, Murnau Chappelle for your sponsorship today. Thank you for your support. Now, now, just before we adjourn for lunch, I'd just like to tell you about a couple of our upcoming events. On October 20th, CMHC President Evan Siddell, in conversation with CBA's Terry Campbell, will discuss how CMHC will help house Canadians and what lies ahead for Canada's authority on housing. And on October 24th, join Mary Simon, past chair of the National Committee on Inuit Education, as she shares her uniquely Canadian journey uh, with education and how she arrived at an understanding of reconciliation through a 21st century vision of education in Canada's Arctic. And lastly, before I adjourn today, I'd like you to uh, take a peek uh, on your tables. We have event survey cards. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience, so please take a minute and help us by sharing your thoughts and comments, including whether you've liked our new shortened luncheon format. We very much appreciate the feedback. This concludes our program today. Please visit the Canadian Club website to download a webcast and podcast of today's event. To learn more about the club and our upcoming events, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. And before we adjourn, ladies and gentlemen, would you please rise as you are able and join me in a toast to Canada. to Canada. Thank you for being a very attentive, engaged audience today. Have a great afternoon and a fantastic weekend. Thank you.